Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word, for its clarity, for its authority, and for your Son, Christ, to whom it points us. Pray that you would give us eyes to see him in this text, that you would soften our hearts to receive him, that you would grant us understanding. Pray that you might be glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two reasons one might be sitting on a dock waiting for a ship to come in. Either the ship hasn't come in yet, or it came and you missed it. Don't miss the boat. What boat are you waiting for this morning? We're all searchers. We're all looking for something. What are you looking for? What are you longing for? A way to test that might be to ask, uh, what do you find yourself thinking often throughout the day? What are you praying for day after day? What's on your Amazon wish list? Our nature is to desire. God has made us needy. God's put eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. There's an ever-present longing for eternity in us. Jesus tells us to ask for things when we need or desire anything. According to James, our sinful nature twists these longings and breeds sin. Our culture even promotes this kind of longing. Every year from the time you're born, what do you do on your birthday? You're told to make a wish. And we're all victims of advertising. We can't get away from ads on YouTube, on billboards. There are ads all around us just driving us to crave more and more things. Our nature and our environment shape our desires. But what does the Bible say our greatest need is? What does the Bible say our greatest desire should be? The Bible is clear. Our greatest problem is sin. It's not our circumstances. It's not our small bank accounts. It's not our lack of friends or physical weakness or even our trauma, our greatest problem is our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. It's even put us under His wrath. All of us have sinned, and all of our lives and all of human history even plays out like a drama, like a suspenseful movie in which we wait to see how this problem of sin will be dealt with, how God will resolve this problem. As we sit on the dock and wait for that scene to play out, we might be tempted to hop on many other boats that promise to deal with sin. We might be tempted to hop on the boat of politics and set sail for a political utopia where Karl Marx or Ayn Rand will will sail us to a land without sin. We might hop on the ship of money where our riches will solve all of our problems that sin has caused. We might hop on the ship of enlightenment where reason and science will solve all of this world's ills. Or we might resign ourselves to the submarine of nihilism and sink to the bottom of the sea and uh, tell ourselves that nothing matters and we'll never see the beauty of the surface ever again. But all those ships will lead us to ruin. 
None can ultimately bring us to where we need to go. All will leave us in our sin. What we ought to do, however, is look for the ship that God has sent. It's an unassuming ship. It doesn't look particularly special, but its dimensions are just right. It's rock solid, and it, without fail, will take you to the destination. Here in Mark 1, Mark is telling us that the ship has come in. Yes, it's unassuming, but if you're looking, it's impossible to miss. So look no further. Jesus, God's anointed Son, is here. Look no further for fulfillment. Look no further for forgiveness. Look no further for contentment, for joy, for peace, for love. Look no further. Jesus, God's anointed Son, is here. In the fullness of time, meaning at just the right time, God sent His Son. And Mark gives us eight, eight proofs that Jesus is that anointed Son of God who all Israel was waiting for, who all the world should be looking for, and who we have thankfully found. First, believe Mark. Mark tells us right off the bat in verse 1, who Jesus is. He says he's writing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. He wastes no words. He tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, chosen, uh, specially blessed and set apart one. He's the Son of God, the only unique and even the eternal Son of God. Yes, Israel, uh, Israel's kings even, were called the son of, were called God's sons, uh, but they were all brought into a relationship with God. Jesus is the Son of God who's held that status for all of eternity. The Son of Sons is here. And the Jews were expecting this anointed Son of God because the prophets told them to expect him. So, second, we should believe the prophets. We believe Mark. We should believe the prophets who say Jesus is. Mark quotes two prophets in this one quote here. He's quoting Malachi and Isaiah. Both say that a messenger is coming in order to prepare the way for the Lord himself. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And as we already read this morning in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah says that after the messenger, the, Lord of glor- the, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The coming of this messenger precedes the coming of the Lord's servant. And mysteriously, at the same time, it precedes the coming of the Lord himself. We see here in Mark that that messenger is John. It's John the Baptist. He's the messenger crying out in the wilderness. If John's the messenger, that makes Jesus the Lord himself. After all, that's what John's message was. He preached that one greater than him was coming. John was a mere prophet. He was preparing the way, baptizing with water. But as he says, Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is the Lord of the Spirit. No mere man, no mere prophet can command the Spirit of God. John's role was one of preparation. He prepared the way, just like the rest of the Old Testament prophets did. Uh, John prepared the way by calling, just like the Old Testament prophets, by calling for repentance. Massive amounts of people from Jerusalem and all Judea were coming out and uh, flocking to him. They were all deeply convicted by this message of repentance he was preaching. They were cut to the heart. John was tilling the soil of the hard-hearted and stiff-necked people of Israel by calling out their sin. Have you prepared your heart for the coming of the Lord? Soften your hearts this morning by being honest about your sin. Let's be a church that's marked by soft hearts who are quick to confess sin. Uh, Each week after our gospel reading, we confess our sin corporately. We do that early on in the service in order to prepare ourselves to receive the grace of God, the grace that we proclaim in the rest of our readings, that we proclaim in our prayers, in our songs, and in the sermon. But it can't stop there. Confession cannot just be a corporate thing. We want to be a church where people are confessing and hearing confession individually. If you were in our building block this morning, uh, we were talking about church discipline. We saw that sin thrives when it's kept in the dark. It's like a fungus. One way we can encourage confession is by being a church that's marked by forgiveness. Since we've been forgiven much by Christ, we must be quick to forgive one another. So if you're holding grudges, if you're harboring resentment, hanging on to bitterness, or even if you have a critical spirit towards your brothers and sisters here, you're not helping to create an environment where sin can be quickly confessed, exposed, forgiven, and where sinners can come alongside one another and help one another through prayer and discipling. Next, hear the testimony of God himself. So believe Mark, believe the prophets, and believe the very voice of God, who Jesus is. At Jesus' baptism, uh, which wasn't because Jesus needed to repent because he had no sin, but was probably to identify himself with his own people, Israel. At Jesus' baptism, uh, he is declared to be the Son of God by a voice from heaven, by God himself. And he's visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's given a visible sign of the Spirit who was responsible for his incarnation, who dwelt with him his whole life, and who now commissions him for public ministry. So God not only gives him an audible declaration, he also, in descending the Spirit upon him, gives him a visible fulfillment of what he promised in Isaiah. Look at verse 10. Look how Mark describes in verse 10 the giving of the Spirit. And as you look, hear how Isaiah describes the coming of the Lord and his servant. Isaiah cries, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And speaking as the servant of the Lord, Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus is the man anointed by the Spirit. He is the spiritual man. Yes, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but He's also truly a man. 
And for a man to glorify God, to honor God, to keep His commandments and love Him rightly, he must do so by the Spirit. Jesus lived His life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the spiritual man. And look what the Spirit does. It drives him into the desert to be tested and tempted. The sovereign Spirit of God brings affliction and temptation and testing into Jesus' life. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus' life was lived perfectly in the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that it was a life of ease, of comfort, and of material blessing. We too should expect to suffer if we expect to live and be sanctified and be made holy by the power of the Spirit. Here all, all prosperity theology is cut to pieces. If you expect a life of ease and of worldly success as a sign of the Spirit's blessing, find a different spirit. The spiritual life is often the suffering life. Peter tells us not to be surprised by trials. And James goes even further and says to count it all joy when you suffer trials. The spiritual life is often the suffering life. Because as Jesus, as his suffering was not for nothing, through it he ultimately redeems his people, neither is your suffering for nothing, Christian. As Jesus' suffering was not for nothing, neither is your suffering for nothing. The spiritual life, the spiritual life of suffering is also the spiritual life of sanctification. And if Jesus endures suffering, testing, and temptation, not in his own human power, should we not too learn that we must depend on the Spirit if we're to endure suffering and temptation faithfully? It's by the Spirit alone that we can overcome sin and temptation. Romans 8, 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So how does the Christian live by the Spirit? How do we put sin to death? Here are a few thoughts from the Prince of Puritans, from John Owen, on putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Four thoughts from John Owen. One, make it your daily duty. Owen says that indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Therefore, it is always to be mortified. Make it your daily duty. If you're lazy in killing sin, if you let the weeds of sin grow without diligently plucking them, they will overtake you. Make it your daily duty to kill sin. Two, make it universal. Put sin to death all the time. I once had a friend tell me that he would deal with one sin after he had successfully given up another. Owen says that he will kill neither. We must be putting all sin to death at all times. Three, make yourself guilty. Make yourself guilty, Owen says. Although there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, Owen instructs us to look to the weight of the law and see how serious sin is in the sight of God. 
Look to the law and see the seriousness of sin. But then surprisingly, Owen says, look to the cross. Not for relief from sin yet, but from, for even more clear sight of God's hatred of sin. Uh, the, sin the, the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, talks about the cross in this way. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. By looking at the cross, we get a clear picture of how God views sin. Finally, fourth, make Christ the object of your faith. Kill sin in the Spirit by making Christ the object of your faith. Trust in Him alone for the forgiveness and victory over your sin. See Him as fully sufficient for that task. Owen even says to cry out to Him with full expectation that He will fulfill His promise to cleanse you and forgive you of your sin. The Spirit delights to glorify the Son. Looking to the Son to overcome sin is a great work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. Verses 12 and 13, we see that Jesus is the spiritual man in the wilderness. And there we get the fourth reason to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The fourth reason to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He fulfills the Old Testament. Believe what the Old Testament says about Jesus in its shadows and in its pictures. Well, the prophets promised the coming of Christ. Much of the rest of the Old Testament gives us scenes and scenarios that are never quite good enough, that never quite hit that final note of resolution. They're crying out to be fulfilled by the Christ. Here in Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, we see the true spiritual man doing what Moses couldn't in his 40 days on Mount Sinai. We see him doing what Israel couldn't do in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We see him doing what Adam couldn't do in the garden. Every other man gave in to temptation, lost his confrontation with Satan. But Jesus emerges victorious. What's assumed here by Mark is clearly stated in the other Gospels, that Jesus has a decisive victory here over Satan. Fifth, fifth, believe Jesus' own preaching. Believe Jesus' own preaching. After his anointing and his trial, Jesus begins to preach. And this makes up the bulk of his ministry over the next three years. After thousands of years of waiting to see what God will do to put away sin, after centuries of Israel's wrestling with God, wrestling with themselves, wrestling with the surrounding nations, Jesus announces that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We can take this verse as a summary statement of Jesus' preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus preaches that the time is fulfilled. As we've just seen, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of time, the fulfillment of all of redemptive history. To those of us sitting on the dock, waiting for the ship to come in, 
the ship that will make sense of all things, the ship that will set all things right. Jesus has just blasted us to us a horn to wake us out of whatever sleepiness or slumber we were in while we were sitting there. If your eyes were drooping as the sun was going down on the horizon, uh, as seagulls faintly call to one another, as waves gently pat the dock beneath you, wake up to the sound of this sharp horn. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is preaching about himself, the fulfilling of time, the kingdom drawing near, and the good news of the gospel are all centered around him. Jesus preaches about himself. He's the culmination of time. He's the king whose kingdom is now drawing near. And he and his works are what make the news so good. Jesus preaches about himself. He preaches about his kingdom. Jesus created all things. He's been ruling all things since the dawn of time. But now he's coming into his kingdom to accomplish his redemptive work and to make visible what was once fuzzy and only able to be seen through types and shadows. One theologian gives us a helpful summary of the Bible's teaching on the kingdom. There's a helpful summary from a theologian on the Bible's teaching on the kingdom from Genesis to Daniel to the Gospels to Revelation. He says that the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. With Christ's coming, preaching, and ultimately dying and rising again, we're given a more clear picture of who that king is, who his people are, and how exactly he reigns. Jesus, he's the king. His people are the church, and he reigns in power now because he submitted to death in weakness. That truth of the kingdom is also what makes the good news of the gospel so good. Because Jesus came not as a conquering warlord, but as a suffering servant, the rule and the reward he offers is eternal. Had Jesus been what the Jews were expecting, had he uh, overthrown the Roman Empire, had he restored the, the throne of David in a physical sense, uh, there might have been prosperity for a time. But physical prosperity cannot last while sin still reigns. Physical prosperity cannot last while sin still reigns. Don't we see that as true in our own society today? We enjoy temporal blessing, peace, and prosperity that the ancient Jew could never have imagined. No king rules over us. We have all the gadgets and luxuries that make kings of old look like peasants. And for the most part, we enjoy peace and health that make death seem only like a far-off parable. But what's that prosperity yielding? It yields political turmoil. It yields a culture that not only tolerates but celebrates the slaughter of babies. It produces a society that mocks God and mocks His image bearers by saying that gender and marriage are whatever you want them to be. Political freedom and physical prosperity, though good things, no doubt, aren't all they cracked up to be while the hearts of men remain hard in rebellion 
to God. But Jesus rules over his kingdom in a better way, in a spiritual way that forgives sin and changes hearts. Jesus forgives sins and changes hearts not by conquering, but by submitting to death, to death on a cross. Having fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness, he willingly went to the cross to fulfill the penalty for the law for those of us who broke it. The Son of God was lifted up. He was glorified not by being lifted up onto a throne, but on a bloody cross. There we see the just and loving King fulfilling the demand of justice for those that he loves. Hear his own teaching from later on in Mark. How did Jesus fulfill that? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And three days later, we see him rise victoriously over death. Three days later, he is, as Paul puts it in the beginning of his letter to the Romans, he is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And as the spiritual man rose in the power of the Spirit, he now pours that Spirit graciously onto others, onto us, onto all believers. His spiritual rule over his people begins as ruling in our hearts. He rules by the Spirit in our hearts. This is the gospel he calls us to repent and believe. Repent. Turn from all unbelief, all worldly hopes, all sinful desires, all self-righteousness. Repent and believe in Him alone. Repent, believe in Him and His saving work on the cross. All who do so are brought into His kingdom. All who do so submit to His loving rule and begin to display the wonderful fruit of His kingdom, a kingdom filled with redeemed sinners, brothers and sisters who forgive, who love, who serve, and who worship, whose minds and hearts are being renewed to look more and more like their king. That was the sum and the substance of the teaching of Christ, and that was the majority of his earthly ministry. Look in verses 21, look in 33, or 38 and 39, rather, 21, 38, and 39, Jesus is going around teaching. He especially pours in and teaches his followers a particular set of his followers, and we should believe them too. So seventhly, we should believe Jesus' followers. We should believe Jesus' followers, and we too should be followers to be believed. In verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls his first disciples, and they drop everything to follow him. He calls them to a life of ministry. He calls fishermen to leave behind fish and start fishing for men. As his disciples follow him for three years, they slowly pick up on his teaching about the kingdom, and even slower, they start to pick up on the teaching about him as the king. Following his resurrection, he fills them with the Spirit and teaches them with new clarity uh, about his fulfilling all scriptures. You can see Luke 24 for that. He fills them with the Spirit, teaches them with new clarity, and commissions them to teach authoritatively. The apostles, therefore, have special authority to declare the truths of the gospel. They're teaching 
and their writing, which we have in Scripture, should be heeded as the very Word of God. Well, we don't have authority to write Scripture like they did. We can speak on behalf of God. We can act as ambassadors, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ? Are you living as though you've been called to make his name, his gospel, and his saving work known to all those around you? Are you equipping yourself to do that? We should not only know the gospel that saved us, but we should also be able to clearly share the gospel. Not only do we have to share it, we're actually called to call people to repent and believe in it, just like Jesus does in verse 15, just like Paul does when he describes his work as imploring, or in some translations, as begging people to be reconciled to God. When you share the gospel, is there a sense of urgency? Are you encouraging the person to seriously consider what you are telling them? Sharing the gospel is not like sharing a recipe. I don't care if my neighbor cooks hamburgers the same way I do, but I do care if she repents and believes. The call of the gospel is a command to repent and believe. It's not a suggestion. Are you adorning this gospel with good works? Are you adorning the gospel you're sharing with good works? It shouldn't be our chief motivation to do good, to adorn the gospel. Uh, but a reliable messenger, to be a reliable messenger, should motivate us to live holy and righteous lives. We don't want to be hypocrites. While we readily confess that we are still sinners, sin will remain with us in some sense until we die, we also want to be walking testimonies of the love and the grace that we've been shown in Christ. One of the best ways that we can be good evangelists is just by being faithful members of this church. We're not called to do this task, to evangelize, to share the gospel. We're not called to do it alone. We're called to bear witness to Christ together as a church. And so long as this church keeps proclaiming the gospel faithfully, the church becomes a huge help to you in your evangelism. It becomes a place that you know you can invite others and they will for certain hear the gospel. Each Sunday morning, the gospel is proclaimed in our liturgy, our prayers, our sermon, and our songs. It becomes a place where you know others will come alongside you and help you to evangelize. It even becomes a place that trains you to evangelize. If sharing the gospel scares you, spend time around other believers who used to also be scared about evangelizing, who are now evangelistic pros. Listen to the evangelism testimonies on uh, our Sunday evening prayer group. We go around and we share 
testimonies of how we're evangelizing to others, hear that and say, I can probably do that too. Be encouraged by coming to Sunday evening prayer. Finally, eighthly, the eighth proof Mark gives, believe Jesus' works. Believe Jesus' works. We see in this passage that Jesus follows up his teaching with demonstrations of his power. He casts out demons and unclean spirits. He heals many. He does this in order to validate the authority of his teaching. He does it to validate the authority of his teaching, to illustrate the substance of his teaching, and to show us his merciful nature. Look down in verse 22. Look in 22. The Jews in the synagogues recognize him from his teaching alone that his teaching has authority. It wasn't a derivative authority like that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the other teachers of the day. He rightly and authoritatively interprets the law. He's not adding unbiblical requirements or customs to it. He's not binding them with man-made rules. He rightly interprets the law and directs them to the fulfillment of that law himself. Just like John and the prophets, his preaching was correct because it was about himself. It was about the Christ. But as a further demonstration of his authority and even of his divinity, he shows his power by casting out demons and unclean spirits. And he heals the sick. Look at verse 27. Those in the synagogues aren't separating his miracles from his teaching. Those in the synagogues aren't separating his miracles from his teaching. They see it as giving authority to his teaching. And we should too. His miracles work to show us, just like the unclean spirit, who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, His only Son who carries the authority of God Himself. His miracles also give us physical images, pictures of what Jesus came to do. He came to cleanse us and heal us, not physically so that we might get sick again and die, but spiritually that we might live forever as new creations. In every miraculous exorcism, in every miraculous healing, he shows his mercy and points us to spiritual truths. Look down in verse 41. A leper comes to him, and he moves with pity towards him. He touches him and cleanses him. Jesus doesn't come as a cold, robotic symbol fulfilling Old Testament commands. He doesn't come as an impersonal truth-teller uh, an embodied newspaper. He comes as an urgent preacher. He comes as an authoritative king and as a merciful savior. And he shows his mercy chiefly in this way, by giving his life as a ransom for many. Of all Jesus' works, trust that one, his work that was done on the cross where he fulfills all that is written about him, that he must suffer and die and be raised on the third day, where he defeats Satan decisively, where he saves his people once and for all. So what should we do with this collection of proofs? This list of eight and many more things in this chapter that Mark gives us. 
Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, use them to grow in your confidence of who Christ is, who your Savior is. Just as Satan attacked Christ in the desert, so will he continue to assault you. He will tempt you to question, to doubt, to despair. Take hold of what God has received in Scripture. Give thanks for how clearly He's revealed who He is in Christ. Then go and live confidently today, knowing who God is and what He has done for you in Christ. Boldly rest for the rest of the day in His finished work. Boldly proclaim to others what's true. Don't be afraid of the greatest attacks on the truth that this world can come up with. The truth, God's Word, will never pass away. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would ask you to consider how much clear evidence you are doubting. I'm not asking you to suppress your mind and take this on blind faith. I'm calling you to suppress your doubts, which aren't intellectual but are moral, and trust in what is clear. Friends, this is it. The ship of salvation has come in. Jesus calls you to repent and come on board in faith. The time is fulfilled for you this morning. Believe the good news of who Jesus is. No greater ship is coming for you. No greater sign will be given to you. This humble man, this spiritual man, this son of God is God's great display of love, of salvation, and of power. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the clarity with which you've spoken to us in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would grow in our believing your word. We pray that we would take it for what you say that it is. Your word that's breathed out by you, that's from you, and that's for our good. We pray that we would see your revelation in Christ as clear, as sufficient, and that we would trust in him. Lord, help us to rest in that truth today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.